welcome to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm E. Jackson. Drawing Dialogue is a podcast discussing comics in historical and educational contexts. So I'm Kathy. I am an educator, cartoonist, and scholar. And I am a cartoonist scholar. So today we are discussing Frederick Wortham. Yeah. Um, he is the infamous writer of Seduction of the Innocent, published in 1954. Um, so Seduction of the Innocent uh, was published in 1954. Uh, it is essentially Wortham's, a culmination of Wortham's research on his like ideas of how comics are, uh, like the reading of comics are a symptom of juvenile delinquency. And his ideas on how comics and more broadly, like, mass media contributes to childhood violence. Yeah, and so Frederick Wortham in the comic world is sort of treated like a McCarthy scapegoat. And so he, we wanted to talk about Frederick Wortham because he has become such a figurehead that's really, um misunderstood or only seen in one lens and we wanted to add a context for him in our comics realm so we aren't going to talk so much about the comics code itself or that period of time that like happened after the comics code and the senate hearings but we did want to start with a paragraph from Comics, Manga, and Graphic Novels, A History of Graphic Narratives by Robert S. Peterson um, that kind of gives sort of a nice summary of uh, the time period involving the Comics Code. So that's... The Comics Code was only partially to blame for the subsequent collapse of the comics industry. Only 12 of the major 34 comic book publishers joined the Comics Code. Many soon dropped out because of the expense of having their comics reviewed or, as in the case of Dell Comics that only produce comics for children claimed their comics were already beyond reproach. Television was also an influence in the downturn because it ate into the leisure time of many Americans. Furthermore, many comics publishers, among them St. John, had rushed into the new 3D comics market in the late 1950s, hoping to become a big success in what was widely anticipated as the next fad. Theirs was a rash move because the market was contracting and so many publishers found themselves stuck with thousands of worthless 3D glasses. Amy Kiss Nyberg has estimated that the single largest influence on the comics industry in the late 1950s was actually the financial instability caused by the collapse of the American news company ANC. In 1955, ANC, which was responsible for more than half of all national comic book distribution, stopped its entire magazine distribution in response to a federal antitrust case brought against it. The service stoppage had the devastating result of forcing many publishers to rely on more expensive and smaller independent distributors, which cut further into their already narrow profit margins. Um, so there's a lot to unpack in that paragraph. It sort of sums up a whole bunch of different things at once. But the main takeaway is that the Comics Code did cause problems, um, but was not the thing that took down comics. Mm -hmm. It was one of a bunch of different factors in the 1950s, most notably the rise of television, uh, which would become sort of the premier mass media form that people look to. And the collapse of the main distributor, a lot of the smaller companies were depending on, and then the smaller companies couldn't afford to distribute anymore. Yeah. And I think it's worth 
um, ding out that at this time, it's estimated that 90% of children were reading comics. This was like, everyone was doing it. And so it was television. Like, it's just like saying, who watches television now? Like, everyone, you know? (laughs) So let's get into Frederick Wortham. Basically, we're going to try to cover his entire career up to Seduction of the Innocent. So this research into Wortham is difficult for a few reasons. Um, And I'm For me, the main culprit is that the Library of Congress restricted access to Frederick Wortham's papers until 2010. So that means that any papers or any research books, all written up to 2010, in fact, after, because research takes a while, they all this research is severely stunted because they just don't have the primary sources. And so almost all these resources about Frederick Wortham are subject to bias. Yeah. And then I feel like another issue with researching him as a figure is that a lot of his work, he was a psychiatrist. A lot of his work is scientific Mm -hmm. um, and medical. So like basically we aren't medical professionals. Me and E are teachers and artists and cultural critics, which is true for a lot of people in the comic scholarship. Um, So this also aids to the issue that comes with these sources about Frederick Wortham, because people are criticizing him without the full knowledge of medical academia behind them. So here our goal is to examine Wortham's positions in cartoonists and comic scholars' minds as a McCarthy scapegoat for the anti-comics movement and his archvillain position as an evil proponent of censorship. Yeah. So we are going to switch it up this episode. Normally, I kind of talk first, but Kathy's actually going to talk first this time. Yeah. So I'm going to talk first because Wortham's career interacts with psychology and the social life of children in a way that intersects with my personal scholarship and interests in education and child development. Biases towards children, especially children of marginalized experience, such as race and mental and learning difficulties, are still felt. These are prejudices that are still quite alive today in educational circles and medical circles. So the ramifications of racism and violence against mental disability are still like extremely real. I'm prefacing what Wortham's work was, right? I'll get into it. So two of my main sources are... So there's a scholar named Gabriel N. Mendes. Um, He published a book called Under the Strain of Color in 2015. He did an interview with Marshall Poe on the New Books Network. I referenced this interview quite a lot. Um, And then another one of my main references is... Bart Beatty's book, Frederick Wortham and the Critique of Mass Culture. Um, So these two sources, um, one is a scholar of African-American studies, and the other is a scholar of comics. So these two sources seem to have, like, they just had extremely different narratives. They would say the same thing in just a completely different lens. And so I just did my best to try to weave these two sources together. I think it is also worth noting that uh, Beatty's book, uh, Beatty is one of the few scholars that has spent time with Wortham's papers in the Library of Congress. Uh, Carol Tilly, who I'm going to talk about later, has a paper and she says, um, 
Until 2010, it appears only historian Bart Beattie had been granted access to the psychiatrist's manuscript collection. Um, the resulting book, Frederick Wortham and the Critique of Mass Culture, departed from much previous writing about Wortham and its generally favorable view of the subject and sought to rehabilitate Wortham's popular and scholarly image. Cool, that's great to know. So, Wortham was born in Bavaria in 1895. Bavaria is a German state. He was born to a non-religious Jewish middle-class family. Um, he comes of age in pre-World War I Germany. He has communist cousins, so he has Marxist ties, which I'm mentioning because this comes up later. There's no documentation that he personally is a communist, but he's around it quite a bit. So he grew up bilingual. He spoke both German and English. Um, so he decides to go to school at King's College in England, and he enrolls in 1914. And almost immediately that he arrives in England, World War I starts. And so he's an quote-unquote enemy alien, and he is put in an internment camp during the war. So I, wanted, I do want to say that I'm going to use a lot of language that might sound outdated because this is like what was used at the time. So he was considered an enemy alien and was in an internment camp. And so at this internment camp, he starts to work with doctors and psychoanalysts, and he becomes fascinated with, quote-unquote, medical psychology. So he enters the field of psychiatry while in an internment camp. Okay. So at the end of the war, he goes back to Germany and gets his MD. He begins postgraduate training to become a psychiatrist, uh, learning under Emil Kraepelin. Emil Kraepelin is the father of classification of mental disorders. So his mentor is the first to study, document, and treat two major psychoses that they could identify at the time, which is they went under different names, but they are known now as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So Kraepelin is reactionary, and this comes up a lot, right? Reactionary psychology. So Kraepelin is reactionary German nationalist who, for Wortham, aligns psychiatry with rearguard politics in an ugly way, marrying conservative reactionary politics and psychiatry that becomes a cautionary tale for Wortham, okay? So this I got from another source. So I started trying to piece together what I personally know about the history of child development. So at this time, social Darwinism was big, okay? It did start in Germany. So social Darwinism was a theory at this time, which marks the beginning of transition from philosophical to scientific thoughts for child development, human development, right? So up to this point, you know, you got Plato, you got Aristotle, it's all philosophical. This is the start of when people started to try to make it scientific. I'm not trying to, I'm not saying that this is good, <laughs> But this is the start of when that starts to shift, okay, for psychology. And so this is strictly a name, right, social Darwinism, because adding social to the beginning of Darwinism is completely fictional. This is just an attempt. It's not real, okay? <laughs> so it starts with Ernest Haeckel. He was working between 1834 and 1919, so this does stick around this time, right? So he started by learning Darwinism, but he brought it to Europe, particularly German scholarship, mm -hmm. and he wrote, he began the German social Darwinist movement. 
So this movement was an attempt to use Darwin's ideas of evolution to understand the organization of society and to create a new or to legitimize existing social order. So if this sounds suspicious, you should understand that it's suspicious, right? So that is another source that is Lerner, who's a child development historian. So in the American Journal of Psychiatry, I found an argument that pits Kraepelin. So Kraepelin is the psychiatrist that Wortham is learning under. Okay, so I found an argument that pits Kraepelin as an ardent proponent of eugenics and of quote-unquote degeneration theory. So this theory propagated that the, again, I'm going, I'm using these words because this is what these sources say, right? Okay. So this is what propagated that the Aryan race was degenerating into higher rates of mental illness and other conditions due to various undesirables in its midst. He published an anti-Semitic paper in 1919. He trained three prominent Nazi psychiatrists and the Nazis practiced um, psychiatric genocide, murdering and sterilizing people suffering from schizophrenia, up to 73% to 100% of people suffering from schizophrenia in Germany. Okay. So this is like a part of the Nazi genocide in the Third Reich. Yes. So this is who was teaching Wortham. Mm -hmm. And so Wortham, as a Jewish man, decided to leave and go to the United States. Yeah. Now, what I don't want to do is prescribe how Wortham felt, because we really don't know. But what we yeah. do know in is in 1922, he leaves Germany and wants to get away. I, I haven't read anything. I couldn't find a source on his emotions about that. So I'm just saying this is the fact. This is who his teacher was, and this is why he left. Or this is when he left. I don't know the why. Yeah, I'm sure that he probably has spoken about it at some point. But it, again, um, without access to his papers, it's hard because a lot of them aren't publicly reproduced. Yeah, and... And I think we're, we are taking these extremely biased sources and trying to remove bias. Yeah, we're trying to find like a middle ground out of the... Uh... Yeah, and it's hard. It it's, is. It's, it's, okay, so Wortham, this is the new chapter of his life in the United States, right? Yes. So Wortham moves to Baltimore and begins teaching in Johns Hopkins in 1922. Mm -hmm. So at the time, Johns Hopkins director was Adolf Meyer who is forging a pathway for psychiatry to move away from philosophical pursuit into one of clinical research. So this also sort of ties into this shift from philosophical to scientific, right? Yes. Uh, Wortham was encouraged to approach mental illness that examined mental as well as physical faculties. Meyer coined the term mental hygiene, quote-unquote, for this movement, which concentrated on, quote-unquote, preventative psychiatry. So this is the linking of human biology to psychiatry allowed Meyer and his followers to approach the patient as an integrated whole. This is important, mm -hmm. okay? Meyer stressed the importance of childhood on, on mental development, but he went beyond Freud in assisting on the equal importance of home, school, and community in shaping the development of young minds. Mm -hmm. Meyer appreciated Freud, for broadening human psychiatry, but criticized him for failing to consider, quote-unquote, social formation. Now, what I decided not to do is really get into too much about Freudianism, 
because I think there's a lot of people who talk about him. But what, so Wortham did grow up in a Germany that loved Freud, right? So Freud had just recently passed away. They didn't like work at exactly the same time, but like, but like Wortham wrote Freud letters when he was in college. Yeah. Yes. And um, interestingly, in the wake of Freud's death, as psychoanalysis like became a, a thing, uh, like very, very popular, Wortham had a lot of problems with uh, contemporary to his time period, Freudian psychoanalysis. He felt that Freud's ideas had sort of been co-opted by a conservative movement uh, and that it was being used to focus only on the individual and not the social. Yeah, which is Freud's thing. Yeah. Right. So it's sort of like looking at a person, maybe their family. Yeah. But it's just examining the individual and not the social ramifications to make them. Yeah. So what Wortham was working within a Freudian framework, um, but he was trying to apply it on like a mass social scale and not concentrating it on the individual so it's his relationship with like freudianism is like very complicated (laughs) and that's true for adolf meyer's hopkins too this is the movement that was happening the mental hygiene movement yeah yeah exactly now i had a hard time see this is the thing this is what um we're referring to and that we aren't medical research specialists i had a hard time trying to figure out adolf meyer yeah right because so like i looked at some johns hopkins papers and they like briefly mention mental hygiene and you're like see the thing is is that racism and like if you don't like your history you scrub it away right mm-hmm. so like all the research that i could find on adolf meyer were just like like brief little inklings about him not his papers or his theories or his beliefs so right he's someone that deserves a bit more attention so Yeah. So the development of mental hygiene movement in the 1920s combined behaviorism and psychoanalysis in an attempt to stem mental illness and delinquency, which was increasingly regarded as a medical problem. So that's conflating delinquency with illness. And delinquency was such a broad term as well that it could mean anything from like theft and truancy to daydreaming. Mm. Yeah, so behaviorism is the belief that sort of development is all conditioned. Mm -hmm. So it's like fears are learned, not inherited, that value has, there's a hierarchy placed on raising and parents, and it's sort of rationalizing fears. Right. Right. So that's what behaviorism, the theory of child development. Now, in reference to the mental hygiene movement, we need to be suspicious at all times, right? So at this time, scientific racism was huge. Yeah. So 1924, two years after Wortham joined Johns Hopkins, was the passage of the Immigration Act of 1924 in the United States, which involved, quote-unquote, intelligent testing. A psychiatric test meant to create racial comparisons and show superiority to white people and non-recent immigrant Americans, which I say because like Italians and Irish were also victims to the intelligence testing. Yeah. Um, So this led to a term that I feel like maybe our listeners have heard, which is the feeble mindedness, um, like which is involved in Ellis Island immigration. Yeah. 
So scientific racism is reactionary, which is what we mentioned before. So it's trying to find answers for a belief that's already held to maintain the status quo. Right. But a real scientist sees what is before him and tries to understand it, rather than trying to find answers for your prejudices. Right. So when Wortham is in Baltimore, Baltimore is a segregated Jim Crow city. So at Johns Hopkins, Wortham begins to align himself with African-American patients in need of care. He starts to give psychiatric testimony for African-American clients facing criminal charges. He's at the center of American psychiatry, but begins to marginalize himself by countering the grain of the order of institutional politics. See, this is a term I got from a source, but I couldn't find information on Adolf Myers Hopkins scientific racism. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, I was reading comic scholars, like different comic scholars, and they would occasionally mention his relationship with other psychiatrists. And it seemed to be sort of a mixed bag of people saying that, like, he was pretty well liked or uh, he was pretty not liked at all. <laughs> yeah. Which just, it just doesn't make any sense if you don't cite your sources. <laughs> Like, yeah it's you have to read re, everything that we read for this has to take so you have to take it with such a grain of salt yeah yeah it's really hard to trust uh anything <laughs> and honestly if anything is like this guy's a jerk it's it, like you're like who that's so subjective <laughs> okay so he begins to get marginalized right yeah wortham wrote his first book the brain is an organ at this time in 1934 Fundamental to Wortham's argument was the the then-radical suggestion that the brain was the organ of the body, similar to other organs, and not, as had previously been assumed, something unique unto itself in anatomical terms. Mm -hmm. I keep mentioning things like this because this is a shift from philosophical to scientific. Right. This is another thing. I couldn't find any information about this, but Wortham gets pushed out of Johns Hopkins in the 1930s. (laughs) I don't know where that pushing came from. Yeah. So he moves to New York. Fact. Okay. 1930s, he moves to New York and leaves Johns Hopkins. Right. He becomes a senior psychiatrist at Bellevue Hospital. In the early 1930s, he enters the field of forensic psychiatry and criminal pathology. And it's through this work that he begins to form a version of social psychiatry, which takes into consideration the social determinant of mental health and disorder through a concern for the individual and collective violence. He also organized and directed the Court of General Sessions, a clinic responsible for screening every felon convicted in in New York City. Mm -hmm. In 1936, he became director of Bellevue's Mental Hygiene Clinic, and four years later, he moved on to the Queens Hospital Center, where he became a director of psychiatric services. Wortham came up with a theory termed catathymic crisis, which was a behavioral manifestation in patients who acquired the idea they must carry out a violent act against themselves or another person. This was a psychiatric syndrome that he suggested went to a considerable way towards fostering and understanding the means of through which fantasies of violence are transmuted into acts of violence. Another thing that I want to say about this, I keep having to preface this, but These are theories. Right. Okay, this is something that he came up with. It's not a fact. Yeah. Yeah. In 1941, Wortham publishes 
The Dark Legend, A Study in Murder, which is his findings and theories in forensic science. He gets connected through Communist Party circles, basically his cousin, and, and sends his book to Richard Wright, the American novelist. Though this is the American novelist who is the author of Native Son, Black Boy, Black Power, etc. Right? So yeah. he's the author who came up with the term Black Power. Right. Okay. I want to add to, um, this is from Nyberg's book, um, while still at John Hopkins, he became friends with Clarence Darrow because Wortham was one of the only psychiatrists that would agree to testify on behalf of indigent blacks. When he moved to New York in 1932, he began to search for a way in which to provide needed psychiatric services um, to blacks and low-income people. He proposed setting up a free clinic in Harlem, but was unable to interest city officials, foundations, or private charities in the project. So he writes this, he writes this book, and then he sends it to Richard Wright, who's into the idea. So in 1946, he gets connected to Richard Wright mm-hmm. and uses this connection to understand African-American life. Yeah. In 1946, Wortham co-founds the Lafarge Clinic in Harlem, New York with Richard Wright. So that is like going off of what E says. Um, so the, the Lafarge Clinic was actually set up in the basement of a black church. Yeah. So the fact that he worked with the church and with the pastor named Bishop, this six foot tall, thick accented white man had like, he was in, was part of a unique and safe space, which helped remove the stigma against, you know, radicalized health disparities. Yes. Right. So people felt safe to go to him. So the Lampard Clinic was aimed at accounting for the psychiatric ramifications of racial oppression and addressing the, bl- the lack of access to mental health care faced by Harlem's Black community. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a social psychiatry that took racial and economic oppression seriously. So to sort of give you an idea of this time period, um, so juvenile delinquency and psychiatric clinics for young African-American people, especially men, had like a lot of stigma around it. Um, so like a, a nice story that Mendes mentioned was that um, in Malcolm X's biography, he talks about how he quote unquote feigns madness to get out of the military when he's a kid. Yeah. So um, psychiatric, so just for some, for some history about the Lafarge Clinic, um, psychiatric practice was seriously shifting away from the mental hospital toward private practice. Um, In 1947, half of all American psychiatrists are affiliated with hospitals, but a decade later, that um, number had dropped to 16%, likely as a result for the fact that psychoanalysis was undergoing tremendous popularization with hundreds of books and articles published each year. Freud was becoming the most popular intellectual forefather of choice among American intellectuals, while Freud was correctly focused on the formative power of the family, Wortham wanted psychiatrists to expand the social circle to encompassing the personality-shaping influence of society as a whole. Yeah. So we mentioned this before. This is both in its diagnostic and therapeutic orientation. It's important to take into the social account both diagnostic, right? So you need to be able to take that into account as a psychiatrist. And that's what Wortham's work was, and that's what the Lafarge Clinic was. So whilst um, psychiatry at this time was extremely popular, there was no trickle down until this clinic with explicit attention to the experiences of anti-Black racism and labor or class exploitation. The clinic worked to extend mental health services 
because little attention was being given to the need of African Americans and other marginalized communities and the poor in general. Mm. This is a quote by Mendes. Wortham embraced psychological discourse and the science of psychiatry as tools to understand Black experiences of modern American society, yet they resisted the general aim of the behavioral sciences to help the putatively abnormal to adjust to the norms of society, right? Because that was the prevailing thing, is that someone was bad, and psychiatry would make them adjust and be normal, right? And that's what Wortham was against. Instead, they sought to develop psychiatric thought and therapy that might aid everyday people in confronting social order of white supremacy and capitalist exploitation. To do so, Wortham developed a distinctive version of the, quote, social psychiatry, end quote, and mm-hmm. orientation to psychiatric diagnoses and psychotherapy that incorporated the social world of the patient into the overall picture of mental health. Wortham did not coin the term social psychiatry, but in his writings and public appearances, he consistently trumpeted his particular brand of conjoining the social sciences and psychiatry in understanding the sources of personality problems and mental disorders. Social psychiatry was an attempt to reorient the field of mental health care toward a, quote, progressive social point of view. And acknowledging the political nature of his efforts, Wortham explained that social psychiatry, quote, does not introduce social partisanship into psychiatry. Social psychiatry uncovers scientifically its unconscious and conscious presence in the every form of psychiatry that has ever existed. There is no science dealing with human beings that is completely unpolitical. Um, I feel like I've gotten Wortham's viewpoint at this moment in time, and specifically with the Tharg Clinic. Um, I'm going to start moving on to um, how we know him best. So Lafargue started to meet its end when Wortham was involved in two prominent social controversies of the day. One being the public school desegregation cases culminating in Brown versus Board of Education, and two being juvenile delinquency debates of the 1950s distilled in Seduction of the Innocent, published in 1954. Wortham Mm -hmm. becomes a flashpoint in the question of the relationship between mass media in the form of comic books and the questions of juvenile delinquency and violence. What sources contribute to a young person's enacting of violence to themselves or others? At the same time, Wortham's encountering and observing the role of violent crime comic books in the lives of young children at the Lethard Clinic and at his work in the psychiatric clinic at Queens General Hospital. At this time, he is also being asked to participate in the scientific testimony in the two Delaware school desegregation cases that were bundled as companion cases with Brown versus the Board of Education. Now, this is extremely interesting for Wortham, right? Okay, so only in the cases that Wortham participated were black and white children examined in a clinical setting. The testimony largely focused on the pernicious effects of segregation on the psyches of black children. Wortham insisted that the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund lawyers bring both white and black children to the Lafarge Clinic, and they did on five occasions. Wortham testifies and sways the judge and is the only case in which the plaintiffs won who were the ones suing for desegregation. So (laughs) he's the only psychiatrist who talked about the effects of segregation on white and black children. And mm-hmm. his is the case, the only case that won, right? 
for people yeah. suing de- for desegregation. What links Seduction of the Innocent and the school de- desegregation testimony is Wortham's concern for framing of both issues in terms of threat to public health. The linchpin mm-hmm. between these is the notion of identifying and eradicating sources of threat to the emotional and mental health of children. And he argues on the one case are violent crime comics, and on the other is state-sanctioned segregation and anti-Black racism. Yeah. So to kind of uh, transition off that, I actually am going to read a quote from Seduction of the Innocents that I think it kind of sums up what Kathy just said, which is, um, Juvenile delinquency is not a thing in itself. It can be studied only in relation to all kinds of other child behavior, and it is a mass phenomenon which cannot be fully comprehended with methods of individual psychology alone. Children do not become delinquents. They commit delinquencies. The delinquency of a child is not a disease. It is a symptom, individually and socially. You cannot understand or remedy a social phenomenon like delinquency by redefining it simply as an individual emotional disorder. So what I kind of wanted to do in this section was talk about the anti-comics movement as it started before Wortham became involved, because I think there is a common misconception that Wortham began the anti-comics movement. And while he certainly sort of became the most prominent figure in it, uh, he was not the only one by a long shot. The anti-comics movement sort of began... In the 30s, pretty much with the advent of comics, it followed on the heels of the same sort of anti-movement around dime novels, uh, which were the previous sort of mass-produced, quote-unquote, cheap literature. There's a quote from the Beatty book that sort of talks about the idea of mass culture. Uh, This is Frederick Wortham and the Critique of Mass Culture by uh, Bart Beatty, which is... um, The term mass culture emerged just prior to the Second World War, and similar terms, mass art, mass entertainment, and mass communication also stems from the 1930s, when they were framed in reference to totalitarian political movements, giving the terms negative connotations from their origins. Grantlinger suggests that all critical theories of mass culture have implied the existence of a superior culture that can be judged positively and, further, that culture is usually located historically in the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, the Middle Ages, or empirically in Athens. So we've talked about this before. Mm. Um, This is high culture versus low culture. And that Wortham, I feel, brought a sort of new legitimacy to the anti-comics movement because prior to him the majority of the movement sort of stemmed from issues of aesthetics. The main arguments against comics were that they were uh, cheap literature, that they were massly produced, um, and that they did not offer any like benefits to the children reading them. At the first sort of anti-comics editorial was actually published by a man called Sterling North, who was a writer. It's, it was in 1940, and it was titled A National Disgrace. Sterling North was uh, the sort of the originator people generally point to. Uh, he predated Wortham uh, by quite a bit. There was also the National Office of Decent Literature, which is a Catholic organization founded in 1938. And what the NODL did was they would create lists of what they called objectionable books, borderline and acceptable books and comics. Um, and they would distribute these lists to churches. 
they would actually encourage people not to make the list public because they were afraid that children would be like, oh, this book's objectionable. I have to go get it. Yeah. (laughs) But it was meant... but it was meant to be a tool for uh, like parish leaders and parents and educators and librarians, which is a big thing, to know which comics were quote unquote books, all books. They did all literature, but comics also related to our conversation were quote unquote like acceptable literature for children. And I just want to point out so this, the first anti comics paper you said was published in 1940, right? Yeah. And 1941 is when Wortham published his accounts of murder cases. So he's like looking into violence in society at this time too. Yes. Yes. The first attempt at a code actually before the hearings was in 1948 uh, by the association of comic magazines, publishers. Um, They would make several attempts at doing a quote unquote code of essentially self uh, regulating their own work Wortham never liked these codes. Wortham was actually pretty strongly against the comic code itself. He felt that the codes uh, didn't go far enough. Like, he didn't trust self-regulation, essentially. So, for instance, in Seduction of the Innocent, he says of uh, the 1948 code, um, So we carefully followed developments. In a crime comic that came out after the code had been in existence for some time, a representative specimen of this group shows... Killing, a policeman knocked out with the usual smart, contemptuous wisecrack. I can't stick around to explain, copper. A man shot in the stomach, a woman mugged and then killed with a hammer to get her pocketbook. Blood, the up-to-date ending of one murder story. Archer Fries didn't die in the electric chair. The state psychiatrist found him to be insane. Detailed instructions on how to hold up a big grocery store. And a brutal murder story with the murderer not caught by law but dying by accident. In the murder sto- in the story, murder is called a mistake. I knew it. They all made mistakes. <laughs> so he talks a lot about codes in this book and he his complaint essentially is that the codes don't go far enough and a publisher can put the code on their book and still have content in that book that would go against what they say the code is supposed to be because the code is self-regulating it's not a law yes yeah right? yeah the yeah. codes were comic books attempt at essentially saving face in response to the public outcry, because it was very... Comics were not very well-liked by adults. There's one thing that I forgot to mention. Oh, go ahead. And that's in all these cases in which Wortham would testify, in all these criminal cases, he was very adamant about not being neutral, and he would always take the side of the personal facing conviction. Yes. Right. He would always defend people facing criminal charges. Yeah. Um, because he blamed society. Yeah. Um, he did not believe in neutrality, essentially. Yeah. And I think that's important. I've, I'm sorry I hadn't mentioned earlier. So, uh, okay. Anyway, he, he was not um, big on these codes. His argument in Seduction of the Innocent was actually to just ban the sale of comics to children under 15. Mm -hmm. He did not want them to stop being made. He just did not want children to be able to see them. Mm. He even says in his book, he talks about censorship in his book, and he says, Surely the minds of children deserve as much protection. I do not advocate censorship, which is imposing the will of the few on the many, but just the opposite, a step to real democracy, the protection of the many against the few. This can only be done by law. 
Just that we have ordinances against the pollution of water, so now we need ordinances against the pollution of children's minds. I suggest a law that would forbid the display and sale of crime comic books to children under 15. Now, that's his word. I'm not trying to, like, say that what he was after wasn't censorship. I kind of have mixed feelings personally. But he did not believe that what he was proposing was censorship. And it's sort of like the way we we deal with pornography. Mm. You know, you have to be 18 in order to purchase it. That's sort of what he's proposing. Am I right in that? Yeah. So Wortham's... His first writings on comics appeared in Ladies Home Journal. He did an interview. And the just to mention the way that publications and magazines worked, just like now we have like television and stuff and internet has kind of trumped it. Ladies Home Journal was like a entertainment for like a lot of people, even though it sounds dorky to the current year. Yeah. Um so people who were against censorship, there were people who are against legislation of comic books. This is from Amy Nyberg's uh, Seal of Approval, The History of the Comics Code. Others, however, felt that legislation against comic books would set a dangerous precedent. The nation went on record in its March 19, 1949 issue as being opposed to legislation directed against comic books, adding, comic books are an opening wedge. If they could be purified, that is controlled. Newspapers, periodicals, books, film, and everything else will follow. But, she notes, uh, while the ACMP, which stands for Association of Comic Magazine Publishers, and the comic books industry had seemingly found allies, most of those who defended comic books against censorship did not condone the publication of crime and horror comic books. In fact, if there had been a way to assure such groups that censorship laws would be limited to comic books, they no doubt would have thrown their support wholeheartedly behind such legislation. So even the allies at the time that the comic books published, like comic books companies had, weren't actually in favor of comics, or at least crime comics. They just thought that if we enacted legislation to censor comics, that meant that we could enact legislation to censor books and films and magazines. And there was a bit of an issue with the issues with legislating comics because different states did try at various times to legislate comics mm. is that they couldn't quite make the language specific enough that they would be able to exclude regular magazines. <laughs> so that's like a big, that was like a big issue. Like there were a lot of attempts and there, mm. there was even um, at the time burnings of comic books. Now what we haven't actually talked about is the content of these comic books. Are you going to get into that or? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to give Wortham's definition of what a crime comic is, because that was his focus. So he defined crime comic books as comic books that depict crime, whether the setting is urban, western, science fiction, jungle, adventure, or the realm of supermen, horror, or supernatural beings. So he did not, there were crime comic books that was a genre of comics, uh, titles such as True Crime, uh, which was by EC Comics. But Wortham defined crime comic books as a genre that could happen within, like, any setting. So he considered Superman to be a crime comic book because there were crimes mm. depicted within Superman. The only comics that would not have fallen under that category were the very, very harmless, quote-unquote, funny-talking animal type, which would be, like, the likes of what Dell Comics would have been publishing. Uh, Dell Comics being the one that kept insisting they didn't have to be part of the code. So at the time, like I said, comics sort of followed in the tradition of 
dime novels, which were also sort of very um, crime focused. Uh, lurid is a word that gets used. It's hard, again, it's sort of hard to summarize because Wortham takes a lot out of context. He does describe the comic books in his book, but it's hard to verify without having the actual books in front of me. But a lot of what he focused on were like sort of the quote unquote worst of the worst. There's one story that gets talked about a lot because Wortham used it as an illustration of uh, the types of violence where like it was a scene of people playing baseball and the the catcher I believe was wearing like the human flesh of the person he had just killed and they were like hitting body parts so like pretty gross <laughs> yeah pretty gory uh very very uh I don't want to try to do a value call but pretty like just sort of designed to catch your eye you know what I mean I do want to say also like his argument in this book tends to get misrepresented as him saying that comic books are solely responsible for juvenile delinquency. That's not what he was saying. He was making an argument that mass media has an impact on children, and he used comic books to illustrate that due to their popularity. I wanted to sort of provide two different viewpoints uh, from two different comic scholars on him, uh, on the book specifically. So the first quote I'm going to read is by Amy Nyberg, who again wrote Seal of Approval, The History of the Comics Code. Okay. Um, and this was her take on his research, which was, his argument was much more complex. His project was to explore the relationship between cultures and individuals, and his belief was that the social and cultural matrix in which individuals existed had been largely ignored by psychiatry and its efforts to understand individual basis. His aim was to understand the ways in which mass media shaped society. He maintained that psychiatry's goal should be to understand social influences affecting behavior. And she goes on to say, Wortham's book, while it drew on his research, was not intended to be a scholarly presentation of his ideas. He used his book as a vehicle to make his case against comics in hopes he could once again mobilize public opinion in support of his proposed ban on the sale of comic books to children, the book was not an objective overview, but a deliberately sensationalized portrait of the worst that comics had to offer. Now, I want to contrast that against this writing from Carol Tilly, who is another comic scholar who's actually spent time with his writings. Um, she got permission from Library of Congress to go and spend a few months like going through his writings to try to make sense of it. And what she found was that he distorted a lot. Uh, like, if you go through the case studies he presents in his notes, because uh, the way Seduction of the Innocent is written is essentially his opinions on delinquency and violence in society, and then supported with observations from his patients. So, like, just case studies, essentially. And what she found in going through his notes, because he was a very meticulous note taker, was that he would often distort or change... <laughs> the information, his case studies to fit his case. Uh, so for instance, something one boy would say would become something that four boys told him at different times, or he would rearrange the things that people told him to make it sound worse on the comics, um, stuff like that, which is definitely incredibly unethical. Like, don't get me wrong. That does still follow what Nyberg's conclusion is, is that it's a sensational Yes. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't. 
I don't, yeah, I don't know if Nyberg was aware, because uh, Seal of Approval came out in uh, 1998, so that would have been well before Tilly would have come out and, like, explained uh, the discrepancies. Yeah, so Tilly did the re- scholarship research to actually say that. Nyberg is just sort of going off what she read. Yeah, yeah, so Tilly, and we'll obviously have PDF linked in the show notes, but she literally breaks down the discrepancies uh and like line by line but she says yet in light of the source evidence now available for independent verification wortham's book appears clearly to be an attempt at cultural correction rather than an honest report of scientific inquiry rather from a psychiatric or social science perspective a conclusion that has long been the source of speculation um so she's agreeing with nyberg but she has the actual like evidence essentially to back it up yeah Cool. Although his work contains no overt references to Frankfurt School theorists such as Theodore Adorno, Wortham's rhetoric advances a similar argument. For him, mass culture and capitalism, as embodied by the coarse world of comics, was not, perhaps, a triumph of fascism over true art and culture, but a real threat to a healthy society. She goes on to say, I want to be clear, however, that my intent in highlighting Wortham's falsifications is not to add my name to the list of the psychiatrist detractors. In fact, I find myself conflicted about Wortham. Having examined thousands of pages of documents that he created and collected, I discovered that he had a genuine passion for children and their welfare, though it is difficult to document that passion meaningfully. At the same time, he gave readers a clear indication that rhetoric must trump evidence. Commenting about a colleague, Wortham wrote, Neutrality, especially when hidden under the cloak of scientific objectivity, that is the devil's ally. So that's... Again, what Kathy touched on mm. earlier, he was against neutrality. He absolutely felt that taking, like, pretending to be neutral in scientific cases contributed to what he viewed as an ongoing issue in American society with violence. So I wanted to present those two viewpoints because they're similar, but they have, like, uh, Nyberg is a little bit more biased towards Wortham than Tilly, and Beatty also. Uh, we talked about Bart Beatty's book. He also has a bit of a bias towards Wortham. In favor of him. In favor of him, yes. Okay. Um, I wanted to read a quote from a review of the book by uh, Toff Eklund that is in the University of Florida's Image Text Journal. He writes, Frederick Wortham, the book, depicts the man as a singular progressive liberal voice of dissent against an increasingly conservative cadre of New York intellectuals selling the idea of an American utopia produced by pluralistic consensus. The only flaw here is that Beatty wants to distance Wortham from the Frankfurt School, insisting on describing Wortham as a progressive liberal and taking Wortham at his word that he is not a Marxist. This despite Wortham's defense of the Rosenbergs, his expressed desire to write a book reconciling Marx with Freud, his consistent anti-corporate stance, and his absolute privileging of children's safety over the freedom of the press. Wortham's view of the government is clearly socialist Marxist, though he was probably never a card-carrying communist. But his cousins were. Yeah, his cousins also were. So, sort of to summarize, I guess, Seduction of the Innocent is a sort of summary, right, of all of the arguments that Wortham has been trying to make about how society impacts children who he considered to be very you know vulnerable especially considering you know keep in mind that he was working with marginalized children who are arguably the most vulnerable and how a lot of it is an indictment of how delinquent children are treated 
as well. He was comics were sort of the vehicle that he chose to use. And a lot of people, there is a common sort of question amongst scholars about Wortham as to whether he sort of dedicated himself to comics as a way to gain fame, like just gain notoriety because it was such a controversial and highly publicized issue. And I can't obviously draw a definitive conclusion on that because I don't have access to his writings. um, And it's hard to say from the bias sources that we have, but it is easy to paint a picture of him as either like a selfless Uh, misunderstood, perhaps misguided crusader for children or a cartoon censorship-loving sort of fascist villain, essentially, who just used comics as a way to become, like, famous uh, and, like, popular, which didn't really work because he was not very popular, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think that the truth probably lies in the middle of those things i think that he very genuinely cared about children yeah he i mean that's just what his career yes. was yeah. so i think he was very passionate about protecting marginalized children he spoke he spoke a lot about uh racism in a time when the idea of institutionalized racism was like not really a thing academically but he was aware of yeah. it. Yeah. He was aware of it. He he did a talk. Okay, so what he said in front of the the school, I want to say Columbia, but I don't have it written down. I'm super sorry about that. Mm-hmm. But the school didn't accept African-American students and didn't accept African-American faculty and it didn't accept African-American clients. Mm. And he stands up there and says... Uh, social psychiatry affirms that the historical development of society and its use or abuse of science periods may occur, which seeming adaptation become maladaptation, adjustment becomes maladjustment, normality a burden. In short, the physician becomes sicker than his patient. <laughs> Isn't that so good? It's hard to understand, but he's telling all these people in this huge institution that they are sick for not (laughs) accepting black patients. Yeah. And I want to follow that with a quote again from Beatty. Um, He argued that each found its basis, not in the psychology of individual leaders, a common assertion that Wortham found absurd, but in the fundamental logic of capitalism. He therefore made great efforts to enumerate, for instance, the economic underpinnings of Nazism. He described racism as a form of potential violence closely akin to colonialism. And I do want to be clear that I'm not condoning some of what he's written in Seduction of the Innocent because there's a lot of, for all that he says about juvenile delinquency and um, racism and things that generally I personally find still prescient today, he does, you know, go off on how Wonder Woman frightens boys because she's very masculine and um, like homosexuality is deviance. Uh, Obviously he does talk about Batman and Robin as a homosexual relationship. Um, This of course being a time when homosexuality was still considered delinquency. So I don't want to say that seduction of the innocent is good. It is a very, very sensationalized book written to scare parents. In a very specific time. Yes. And yes. context. But I also think that there are parts of it that are worth reading and understanding how they could apply today and how a lot of his thoughts about violence, uh, he felt that violence 
was the opposite of communication. He, and he just, he felt that society created and condoned violence in children and that to correct violence in children, you had to correct society and not blame mm. the children. Because that was the thing is that people tend to, he, he even disagreed with a lot of anti-comics crusaders because a lot of people would say like, oh, comics are bad, but they only affect children who are abnormal. And his argument was no child is abnormal. Cool. Yeah. So you have a thing you want to say about the Lafarge, correct? Yeah, I wanted to wrap up what happened with the Lafarge Clinic. So this is from Mendez. So 1954 is when Seduction of the Innocent gets published. And in New York State, also in 1954, the Community Mental Health Services Act, which seems to be an opportunity for the Lafarge Clinic to get resources that has always dreamed about since its inception, they are denied funding. Right. Um, Mendez says that this is because Wortham is a prickly figure um, and that he's ostracized people that would be in his corner. We can also bring in what E.E. has previously said, that even though the Community Mental Health Services Act was meant for uh, areas of poverty... The Lafarge Clinic was the first, it was a grassroots organization, so there might be more to that story than just Wortham, right? So in 1954, the clinic itself doesn't get funding, but it hangs on until 1958. But 12 years is a long time for a DIY grassroots institution building, seeing thousands of patients. Mendez argues that the model of the clinic is picked up in a later iteration in the community mental health movement of the 1960s. So just to show sort of the individual legacy, one of the volunteers for the clinic in the 1970s, she becomes the New York Commissioner of Public Health. So she cut her teeth at the Lafarge Clinic in terms of public health and a humane practice of psychiatry. So this is sort of, I just wanted to talk more about uh, child development and sort of where we are in these theories, right? Right. Um, so it was not until 1958, so this is four years after Seduction of the Innocent. It wasn't until 1958 that the publication of Hereditary uh, Environment and the Question of How, which is written by Anne Anastasi, did human development scientists stop their pendulum swinging between nature and nurture and even start to accept that children are affected by both their environment and their hereditary. Okay, so... Nature versus Nurture, 1958, it's just like, Anastasi is just like, it's both. Stop arguing, it's both. Okay? Right. And part of the argument, this is still super common. People don't understand that people develop in nature and nurture, right? Um, so part of Anastasi's argument was that to be deaf, for a child to be deaf, was considered a mental disorder mm -hmm. until they started to realize that you just get a special school. You just teach them in different ways. It's because deaf children were going to the same schools that hearing children could, were at, and they couldn't learn. And right. So they were considered mentally deficient. Right. So it just shows that it's just like nature, it's the nature of the child, but it's also the nurture of the school. Right. Right. So that's just the example that she uses. This is pertinent. Okay. And then it's not until 1996, 21 years ago, did child development researchers propose a framework for an integrative model for the study of development of the competencies of minority children. Okay. Let me, let me break this down. 
It wasn't until 1996 did child development researchers even begin to propose that children of marginalized experiences develop differently than children of the majority. <laughs> so, like, there's no research. Research is just... It's like it's hard to get the scientific realm to even accept marginalized experiences yes. and even look into it. So the spiritual legacy for the Lafarge Clinic offers to contemporary scholars and practitioners, us, a model of intervention that foregrounded the social context and experience of, of forms of oppressive life circumstances on race and laboring inequality. Mm -hmm. A lot of contemporary practitioners are still struggling with questions around cultural competency, structural competency, etc. They're struggling against the hegemonic approach to psychiatry, and it continues to reign. All I'm saying is that there's a legacy that the Lafarge Clinic has. So I have two more things very quick. I wanted to talk about, so Wortham's core assumption in Seduction of the Innocent is that looking at these images of violence and racism and sexuality would inspire children to commit acts of violence. So was he correct, like at all about that, right? So it wasn't until 1965 that psychologist Albert Bandura did research that revealed that uh, children's aggressive acts were partly influenced by what they observe. In general, the more aggressive the people or films that children observe, the more aggressive the children act. Um, later research has shown that viewing violent acts on TV and in the movies affects people in other negative ways. It decreases viewers' concerns about victim suffering. It decreases viewer sensitivity to violent acts. And it decreases the likelihood that viewers will emulate the aggressive acts depicted in the show or movie. This is from Violence in the Media, which is a page on Psychology's Today Research and Action. They talk about this. They say that, interestingly... And this is uh, contemporary. They don't have a date on this page, but this has at least been put up in the past, like, 10 years. <laughs> they don't date the page, but, like, the research they link is fairly recent. Interestingly, being aggressive as a child did not predict watching a more violent TV as a teenager, suggesting that TV watching could be a cause rather than a consequence of aggressive behavior. However, later research by psychologists Douglas Gentile and Brad Bushman, among others, suggested that exposure to media violence is just one of several factors that can contribute to aggressive behavior. Other research has found that exposure to media violence can desensitize people to violence in the real world, and that, for some people, watching violence in the media becomes enjoyable and does not result in the anxious arousal that would be expected from seeing such imagery. So it seems to be, based on what I've read, the contemporary, like, nowadays, the conclusion is that engaging in violent media will not automatically make you a violent person, but it can desensitize you to experiencing it. Yeah, there's a difference between having the violent act to becoming violent yourself. Right. 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 So like seeing images of murder can desensitize you to seeing murder, but it will not necessarily make you go out and commit a murder. This also ties in to Wortham's points about racism, the effects of racism. So he argued in Seduction of the Innocent that uh, racist stereotypes, which were incredibly prevalent in comics at the times, inspired feelings of prejudice in children as young as four. And I have 
a quote here from an article by Precious Stevens from uh, Georgetown University's uh, Novice Journal, G-N-O-V-I-S, um, called Technology and the Dehumanization of the Black Body. Um, and she says, Dehumanization strips individuals of their human qualities, attributes, and rights. It does not happen overnight. It is an ongoing social and psychological process that enables us to see individuals as less than human and legitimize increased violence or justify the violation of basic human rights. Although regularly seeing black bodies harmed on our television, laptop, and smartphone screens may evoke sympathy, in actuality, it contributes to the dehumanization process. The act of sharing these occurrences of police brutality is not prejudicial in itself, but it undermines the respect and social protections from violence that should be afforded to all human beings. So that also ties into something Wortham says in comics. He was commenting on um, how women are portrayed, and he brings up the point that non-white women were the women that were always portrayed nude, uh, which he Mm. argued created a sense that non-white women uh, were subject to a sort of moral indecency that white women were like pure. He was basically saying that like that inspired the idea that white women were pure and non-white women weren't. And he argued that that would have an effect on the psyches of children as well. So nowadays, it is generally understood that uh, images do have an effect uh, like expo- mass exposure to images. And I think it sounds a little silly to us now because comics are a relatively minor part of uh, the cultural landscape. But mm-hmm. ninety those figures, 80 to 90% of children were looking at these images, right? So that's like an important context to keep in mind. And I also wanted to talk about uh, Killing Us Softly, which is another a documentary about how women are used in advertising. So it proposes something similar to what comics, do, what Wortham proposes with comics, except that uh, it's obviously speaking to advertising, which is a much larger scale uh, nowadays. And actually, interestingly, Wortham does talk about advertising in comics and how those can inspire feelings of inferiority in girls. Mm-hmm. But in Killing Us Softly, they say, uh, just like you can't be physically healthy in a toxic physical environment, you can't be healthy in a toxic cultural environment. And in Wortham's own words, Children are like flowers. If the soil is good and the weather is not too catastrophic, they will grow up well enough. You do not have to threaten them. You do not have to psychoanalyze them. And you do not have to punish them any more than wind and storm punish flowers. So just to wrap up, I did want to uh, quote uh, Wortham talking about his legacy in the 70s. Um, Wortham would write a few more books. He did try to write a book on television six years after uh, seduction because television, as we mentioned before, became sort of the new form of mass media. Um, But six years later, no one would publish it. The cultural landscape surrounding these conversations about mass media had changed enough that it would no longer be the same like shocking sensationalist revelation that seduction was. And people were worried. His original publisher for seduction was worried that it would have the same success, quote unquote, success, non-success that seduction had where thousands of people wrote like positive reviews of this book, but it didn't sell because it had been talked about so much that people did not think they had to read it. Yeah, it became infamous almost instantaneously. Yeah. So even though it was well received, it wasn't read. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the way Mendy's sort of summarizes Wortham's career is that he was both marginalized and famous. Like people knew about him, but he was extremely marginalized at the same time, paradoxically. Yeah. And so in the 70s, he wrote a letter to horror comics editor Alan Hewitson uh, saying, things have changed since Seduction of the Innocents. 
Compared with all mass media, comic books are now only a minor influence. My main contribution was to point out that what happens in mass media was not only a reflection of society, but also an influence on it. I have never suggested, endorsed, nor approved the comics code. I merely suggested that the most gory crime comic should not be directly displayed to children of 13 and under. Censorship is what one agency does to another. The Comics Code was not a censorship body. It was an intra-office business relationship. <laughs> um, yeah. That is like the least sexy way to put it. <laughs> he really hated the Comics Code. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I I guess my take on the Wortham is like, Tilly, I am ultimately just conflicted. And I think I would encourage anyone who is curious about him at all or hates him or even likes him, although I don't know anyone who just likes him offhand, to find Seduction the Innocent, um, because you can get copies of the libraries, there are PDFs online, and, you know, spend some time with it and draw your own conclusions, because you don't have to agree with him or think that he wasn't contributing to censorship, whether he said he was or not. You know, that's all sort of hard to pin down at this point just because of the lack of accessibility to these resources. But I think it's, you know, worth knowing the history, you know, and like knowing what his actual words were. Yeah. And I think my efforts with this podcast were to use Wortham as an example of a man of his time Mm -hmm. and what he was working within and what he was contributing. Right. So like, I think a lot of his work was cool. Yeah. Like, it was good and cool. <laughs> yeah. That's the, like, that's the thing, right? Is that so much of what I read in Seduction of the Innocent, I could apply to ongoing conversations um, that we're having now about the role of yeah. comics in national discourse. And even his work against white supremacy. Was, he mm-hmm. was working within uh, psychiatry and telling them that they were doing a bad job for they, they had mm-hmm. discriminatory practices and they weren't being yeah. good medical professionals. Yeah. So, you know, whether you think he's a sellout or a visionary or just a jerk, like that's what we got. <laughs> that's our... <laughs> that's... And no, it's, it's hard. I... We, I mean, what we don't want to be biased here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we just want to tell you the facts and try our do our best to present them. So yeah, all I can give you is what other scholars have said and what Wortham's own words are. Mm-hmm. So that was the Wortham special. Thank you so much. Um, this was drawing a dialogue. Um, I want to thank Downtown Boys for their song Wave of History. It's off their album Full Communism. Um, They just started a tour, so they might be coming to your city. You should go see them. They're awesome. So you can find out more about the podcast on comicarted.com. You can email us at drawingadialogue at gmail.com. Send us your hate letters about Wortham. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You can also follow us on Twitter at drawadialogue, and you can just tweet us if that's easier for you. You can follow me on Twitter at E-H-E-T-J-A-E-H-E-T-J-A. And you can follow me at Kathy G. John. So what are you reading, Kathy? I've been reading Sweetness and Lightning by Guido Amagakuri. Um, it's a manga series about a preschool girl and her dad. And it's a cooking manga, so they cook meals together. 
And it's a lot about the loss and sort of mourning her mom. Aww. Um, it's getting published by Kodansha Comics, and they just came out with book seven. I almost never buy all the way up to book seven for manga series, but this one is so sweet and so good, and I cry like every chapter. It's so wonderful and heartwarming. <laughs> so what are you reading, E? So I read this really beautiful little game called and i made sure to hold your head sideways it's by um oh i'm so sorry if i mispronounced this but it's by uh jenny jiao hyaisa i don't know how to say that last name i'm sorry and it's it was made for a flat game annual jam in 2016 and it's like a very interesting game mechanic where you just sort of move uh your keys to sort of like scramble and unscramble these sort of scribbled pixel drawings as the story is told and it's like a really beautiful mechanic that i hadn't seen used before so i liked it a lot wow that sounds awesome yeah i'll send it to you it's really quick to play okay thank you very much thank you farewell to our intrepid volunteers <laughs> <Every time. laughs>